Good morning. The text um, for this morning's message is from the prophet Isaiah. We'll be reading chapter 58. I not only invite you, but I encourage you to uh, follow along. Um, If you do not have a Bible or a phone or a tablet, uh, you should be able to find a Bible on a chair just in front of you or off to the side. You will find Isaiah chapter 58 on page 617 if you're using one of the chair Bibles. We're going to be reading all of, excuse me, (coughs) it's not COVID, I'm getting over a cold. Um, We'll be reading all of uh, chapter 58, uh, 14 verses. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no advantage, no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such a fast that I chose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor in your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach and restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not doing your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Here ends the reading of God's holy word.
Thank you, Tim. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. You are our creator and redeemer. We're here because you've revealed yourself to us. You teach us. And Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you would, by your spirit, enable me to say what your word says. And Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would enable all of us to hear what you have to say. To not just hear it, but to receive it, and to believe it, and to be changed by it. Father, we we pray and we ask that you would work in us for our good and your glory. In and of ourselves, we are unable to do any of this. But Father, but by the power of your Spirit, we, we trust you to work even now. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, a couple of questions. One is this, is, is being religious ever dangerous? Is being religious ever dangerous? And by dangerous, I mean God is offended. Is God ever offended or grieved by your religious activity? Well, what, what are some of the religious activities that we participate in today? And probably at the top of that list for us is coming to church. And I know it's really us gathering as a church. We don't go to church, but it's okay to say we're, we're coming to church. And we know, we know that being together is something that is important to God. But is God ever offended by us coming to church. What about, what about praying? Praying is another religious activity. Uh, lots of people pray daily and even multiple times in a day. Is God ever offended by your prayers? How about Bible reading? That's something that is done daily by many Regularly, every morning, every night, whatever it might be, is God ever grieved by your Bible reading? So church, prayer, Bible reading, all of these are certainly good activities, but could, there ever, could they ever be considered dangerous? Could, could your religious activity be something that grieves the heart of God? Now, in our sermon text for today, the answer is given to us, and the answer is yes. Your religious activity could offend God. We're going to talk about how, how in fact, that could happen, and we are also going to talk about true religion that does please God, and what does that look like? In Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 14, fasting is the religious activity that's mentioned here. It's mentioned eight times. And the Lord confronts those 
fasting practices of the Israelites, which were not at all pleasing to the Lord. And then we're taught in this text how they should, in fact, fast in a way that would please the Lord. And what we learn here applies to fasting, even in the New Testament, but it really can be applied to any and all of the various aspects of our religious activities. What, what we learn today applies to any and, any, any and every area of our worship, corporately and even individually. Now, fasting, according to Leviticus 16, 29-31, was an important way for the Jews to prepare for the Day of Atonement. Uh, fasting also became a response to mourning in the Old Testament. People would fast when they were grieving the death of a loved one. F fasting would accompany repentance. Uh, times of prayer would be accompanied by fasting. And certainly in times of emergency or national crisis, people would fast and pray. And by definition, fasting was a practice of giving up something, uh, primarily food, to really focus upon God. Fasting is really a way to say to the Lord, I need you more than I need anything in life. Fasting can be a good thing that pleases the Lord. But through Isaiah, we learn that something is terribly wrong with Israel's practice of fasting. In fact, the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, excuse me, he says it to the prophet Isaiah in verse 1, and I quote, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So we learn here that sometimes a rebuke is needed, even to the religious. The Lord tells Isaiah to, be, uh, to, to not be shy. Don't, don't be quiet about this. Cry aloud. Make your voice be heard like that of a trumpet. A, a trumpet was something that was used to grab the attention of people. And the Lord says to Isaiah, When you have their attention, declare to my people their transgression. So, Isaiah is to speak to God's chosen people, to my people, and he is to confront them with their sin. Now, when someone is caught in a sin, a, a word of rebuke is needed to help them see clearly what God wants them to see. It warns them about a specific sin and calls them to repentance. And if we understand the holiness of God, and if we understand the sinfulness of mankind, we should not be surprised that this, in fact, is necessary at times. If, if you remember from last week, the Lord, we, we learned how the Lord dwells in the high and holy place, and with Him who is contrite and of lowly spirit. So don't, don't miss that. God dwells with the one who is broken over his sin. And, and how do we learn of our sin? Well, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, often, often using people in our lives 
confronts us or rebukes us in our sin. So if we're caught in a sin, and we're not rebuked for that sin, we won't repent of that sin, and we won't be broken over that sin. And this promise that God dwells with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit will not be a comfort to us. Rebuking or confronting sin is not punitive. It's redemptive. So restoration to God is not possible without sin being confronted. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that He will convict us. He will confront us in our sin. And the Spirit often uses other people in the church to do that work of confronting us in our sin. This, this is part of the responsibility of an elder, as Paul taught Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1-4, through 4, and I quote, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So if you reprove someone, you speak in a way that helps them to see their sin. If you rebuke someone, you more sternly warn them of that sin and you call them to repent. But, but notice that you do this with complete patience and teaching. That, that is one of the God-given responsibilities of an elder. But it's not just for elders either. L listen to Matthew 18, verse 15, and I quote, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And if he doesn't listen, that passage gives us other steps to take. But notice, first, your responsibility to go to the brother that sinned against you and to tell him, his fault. And if you speak in a way, uh, you will speak in a way that will help them to see their sin clearly. And often, often we sin against others and we, we don't even know it. We don't see it. Or sometimes we see it and we minimize it or excuse it. We, we may not take it seriously until someone shows us our fault. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So let me ask you, are, are you willing to do this ministry? This is, this is a hard ministry, isn't it? Are, are you willing to do this ministry? We're commanded to do it. Another question that comes along with this are you willing to receive this ministry? Should any of us be surprised if there 
there might be a sin in our life that someone needs to point out. <laughs> Should we be surprised by that? Um, are, are, we, are we teachable? Are we receptive? Are we obedient to be a part of that ministry? Will, will, will we receive that ministry? We, we cannot grow, we can't change and mature without this ministry being a part of our life. Now listen to Galatians 6.1. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So again, uh, brothers are being addressed here. It's not just elders, it's all believers. And it says that if anyone, by implication, it's anyone in the church is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Um, just a few verses earlier, we learned what spiritual looks like. And this is the passage that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when these fruit are present and growing in your life, not perfectly, that won't happen until glory, but if these fruit are present and growing in your life, then you are prepared to restore a brother or sister who is caught in a sin. This idea of restoring involves speaking to someone about their specific sin. It's a reproof or rebuke. So the word restore is the word that describes what a doctor does when he sets a broken bone. Um, so, so think about that. If, if you break your, your wrist, um, I happened to be on a call this week with the fire department where someone fell and broke their wrist. Um, and it wasn't pretty. All right? It wasn't pretty. And so when I, when I think about this passage, I think about that incident. This lady who fell and broke her wrist. If that doctor, if a doctor doesn't set that, um, it won't heal properly, and she will not be able to use her, her hand or her arm the way that God intends. So that broken bone has to be set so that healing can take place. And in a similar fashion, a brother caught in a sin must be set right again for proper healing to take place. But again, verse 1 says we do this in a spirit of gentleness. So if you're gentle, you give careful thought about how what you say impacts or is received by another. You're sensitive to that. You're bold, you're obedient, you're courageous, but you are aware of the impact of your words. And you pay careful attention to speaking in a way that will be most helpful for the restoration to take place. And this passage warns us, watch that you don't do this in a way where you too get caught in a sin. It's possible for you to say the right thing in the wrong way. Um, so watch yourself. There's no room for a judgmental spirit or a self-righteous spirit. There's no room for you to be impatient or harsh. You, you speak as a fellow sinner, sinner saved by the mercy and the grace 
of Jesus. So you speak truth, but it needs to be dripping with the mercy and the grace that you yourself have received from God through Christ and by His Spirit. And so sometimes a rebuke is needed, even in the church. But what was it that the Lord wanted Isaiah to confront? Well, in verses 2 through 5, we learn how religious activity, including, including fasting, religious activity does not please the Lord if, and then three things are mentioned. And first, religious activity or worship that does not please the Lord is this, if it's done in hypocrisy. Verse 1 says a rebuke is needed. There was sin in their lives. Verse 2 says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if. And that's the key. As if. It really wasn't true, but they acted as if it were. As if. They were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. When, in reality, they were unrighteous and they had forsaken God's judgment or justice. The text goes on, they ask of righteous light to draw near to God. So, here are people who are fasting. <laughs> we'll see that in the coming verses. That fasting is what they're doing to seek God daily. And they act as if they are righteous, but they really aren't. If you pretend to be something that you're not, that is hypocrisy. The external act of fasting, going without food, praying, they, they look really, really good. But something was amiss in their hearts. And God sends Isaiah to call them out, to confront them, to declare their sin. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, he, he calls them whitewashed tombs, uh, looking all pretty on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside. In verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. In Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul confronts Peter for his hypocrisy, for acting one way when he was alone with the Gentiles, and then acting another way when the Jews came and were present. God abhors hypocrisy. The Israelites were appearing to be so genuine. They were fasting and praying even daily, but it was a fraud. Why was that? Well, verse 3 says that their religious activity did not please the Lord because it was done seeking their own pleasure. So what's, what's interesting is that people were fasting, they were praying, they, they were, quote-unquote, seeking the Lord daily. But the more that they did that, the more they became increasingly frustrated. L listen to them in verse 3. Why, why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves? and you take no knowledge of it. 
So they were upset because God was not giving them what they wanted. What was it that they wanted? The Lord gives them a straight answer in the second half of verse 3, and I quote, Behold, this is what the Lord says to them, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So, so there you have it. They, they were trying to use God to get what they wanted. They, they tried to twist the arm of God in their fasting, and that didn't work. And they were also mistreating their workers while they were praying and fasting. So lots of religious activity, but no good results. Just frustration and anger. Because their hearts were driven by their own pleasure and not God's. They, they didn't humbly ask God. They didn't submit to God. They, they tried to manipulate God to get what they wanted and what they felt like they deserved. So when, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane as He anticipated His crucifixion, this is, this is what He said, Father... Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. That came from a heart that was seeking the Father's pleasure and will, not his own. So how do you pray? Are, are your prayers angry? frustrated demands for God to give you what you want? Do, do you remind God of all that you have done and are doing for Him? Do, do you ever think that your church attendance or your prayers or your Bible reading should be enough for God to give you what you selfishly want? Are your prayers nothing more than an attempt to manipulate God to give you what you want. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 how to pray. He says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray in a God-centered way, desiring His will first and foremost. Jesus does go on to teach us the, to pray, asking for our daily bread, but the focus of the prayer is a humble. It begins this way, it, and it ends that way. It's a humble desire to see God's will be done, for His name to be set apart as holy. Jesus teaches us to value God's more, God's will more than anything else, more than our own. It, what's most important, what the Spirit wants to produce in us is to bring us to the place where what's most important to us is what God wants, not just what we want. God is not pleased with hypocrisy. And God's not pleased with self-serving prayers, but also our religious activity does not please God if it is done without loving God and others. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Behold, you, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. 
Fasting should come from a heart that humbly submits to God, loving God and loving your neighbor. But here are people fasting, which on the surface sounds good, but the problem was that at the very same time, they were quarreling, they were fighting, they were even striking others with a wicked fist. The the latter part of verse 4 says, Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. You can have all of the religious activity in the world, but if you at the very same time treat people in wicked ways, you should not expect your prayers to be heard. Verse 5 says, Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes upon him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So all of the fasting in the world will not please the Lord if at the same time you don't love God and love people. God's not interested in external activities, even religious activities, if it doesn't come from a sincere heart that loves Him and loves others. And so, it shouldn't really surprise us what we learn in verse 6 and 7, that religious activity, including fasting, pleases the Lord if, if you don't ignore the oppressed. Verse 6 says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? So, Bonds, straps, yokes, all of these speak of being enslaved or oppressed. And so the Lord is saying that what He really wants is for us to give freedom or liberty to the oppressed. We, we want to love people in a, such a way that it helps them to know God and love God and to love others. But sadly, If we're trying to twist the hand of God into giving us what we want, we will surely be treating other people in the very same way. We will give to other people, but always with strings attached, just to get what we want. We will always want to get from other people rather than giving to other people. And we know that God is, in fact, the greatest giver of all. He delights in giving lavishly to those who are undeserving of His favor. We learned that last week. Remember that phrase where the Lord says, I have seen His ways, yet I will heal Him. (laughs) I love that. I have seen His ways, and they weren't good, and and yet I will heal Him. So if we're going to love others as God has loved us, we must be generous givers to the undeserved, which is the exact opposite of enslaving people to get what we want and what we think we deserve. But we we can't ignore the use or or use the oppressed to, to get what we want. Fasting or praying or any religious activity that pleases the Lord will in fact come from a heart that loves people, that gives to people for their good, even the undeserved. Also, religious activity that pleases the Lord includes this, as seen in verse 7, you don't ignore the poor. Verse 7 says, 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Uh, John, One commentator, John Oswald, says this, and I'm going to quote a little bit longer uh, statement that he made. I think it's very helpful. He says this, We can engage in fasting to prove to ourselves how religious we are or to try to use it as a device for making God do our will. And then he says, if they want to deprive themselves, which is what we do when we fast, if they want to deprive themselves, let them do it for the sake of the oppressed, the needy, and the helpless, not for the sake of their own religiosity. God's nature is to give Himself away to those who can never repay Him. There's no clearer evidence of the presence of God in a person's life than a replication of that same behavior. Throughout this latter part of the book, the emphasis has been on the freedom God wants to give to His people. The ministry of the servant will be to set people free from all of their bondage, and the Babylonian captivity provided a great image of that bondage. Now Isaiah addresses people who have theoretically received the servant's freedom. What are they doing with it? Are they living as free persons, spreading that freedom wherever they go or in all of their relations? Or are they using it as a vehicle to exalt themselves at the expense of those around them? The prophet says that if they want to stop something, abstain from something, why not begin by putting a stop to oppression of every sort? End of quote. So, don't ignore the oppressed or the poor. Instead, give to them, serve them for their good and for God's glory. And then don't miss verses 8 through 10. Here, here we learn that true religion, true religion will be blessed by the Lord. Listen as I read 8 through 12. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He'll protect you, defend you. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall uh, raise up the foundations of many generations." You shall be called the repairer or the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So true religion that has God's stamp of approval on it will include loving others as God has loved you. So where, where does this true religion come from? Well, 
Our final two verses, 13 and 14, teach us that true religion flows from a heart that delights in God. In these last two verses, we move from fasting to the Sabbath. Uh, In the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, a day set apart as holy, a day set apart for the Lord. It was a day to make God central in all of life. So you ceased from your work and you remembered and you celebrated the person and the work of God in your life and faith community. Sabbath in this context becomes a symbol of your whole life and heart devoted to God. Verse 13 and 14 say this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you. Isn't that interesting? Instead of fasting, what you're trying to do to manipulate God, if if you just worship Him in a a true way, He'll feed you a feast. I, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Here we learn that the Lord is very interested in what is in your heart. But what is the desire of your heart? It's it's fitting and it pleases the Lord if you delight in the Lord above all else. And that is really the key motivation for life. Whatever you do, do it as an expression of your delight or your joy in God. Uh, As a Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man, and the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Or, as Piper has said, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. There's a great emphasis and connection upon when you enjoy God and delight in God, that's when God is most glorified in you. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When you've experienced, when when you have experienced God's love for you, it changes you. God's love teaches you and frees you and empowers you to love Him first and foremost, and then to love others as well. God's love in you, God's love in you gives you a new heart that leads you to delight in Him above all else. So what what is the primary takeaway from this passage this morning? Well, I don't think this passage teaches us that God isn't interested in your religious activity. Um, God God wants you to worship. God wants you to gather for fellowship and edification and prayer, to sing praises corporately to God. God wants you to be active and in the habit of praying, to be in the habit of reading and meditating on the Bible, to serve one another like, 
like you did beautifully yesterday, those who helped Kelly move. That was a beautiful expression of the love of God in your lives in serving her. So God's, God's interested in all of those things, wants those things in your life. This passage doesn't teach you that God's not interested in those things. Instead, this passage teaches you that your motive for doing those things is very important to God. True religion flows from a heart that delights in God. So, I would encourage you to do three things. One, think deeply about the person of God. Um, the, the Scriptures reveal God. Uh, creation reveals God. Jesus Christ came to this earth to reveal the Father to us. Think, think deeply about the person of God. What is He like? Who is He? What, what does He reveal to us about Himself? Last week in chapter 57, verse 15, we read this, For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So if we're going to delight in God, if we're going to love God, we have to think deeply about the person of God. So when you open up the Bible to read, you don't, you don't read it just to learn a list of rules about what not to do and what to do. You, you open up the Bible and say, God, help me to see you for who you are and your character and the way that you are at work in the world and in my life. So think about the person of God. Think about, secondly, think about your sin. If you see God holy, high and lifted up, if, if you're thinking about the person of God and who He really is, it will expose your sin. So think about your sin. What specifically do you learn about the true condition of your heart, the habits of your heart? And let that lead to your repentance before a holy God, like Isaiah did. He said, Woe to me, for I am a man with unclean lips. But don't stop there. Think about God. Think about the person of God. Think about your own sin. But then think about God's love for you, demonstrated by the gift of Jesus to set you free from your sin. God's love was demonstrated. It was made known. It was manifested by the gift of Jesus. And He came to this earth and He lived a perfect life and He went to the cross as the spotless Lamb of God, willingly laying down His life so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And when you believe, when you put your faith in Jesus, you trust Him for your salvation. You do that because He's given you a new heart with a new desire. So I, I want to ask you this morning, think about God, think about your own sin, but think about Jesus. Think about God's love for you demonstrated by the gift of Jesus. It's not enough for you just to hear that. It's, 
the Scriptures teach you and call you to believe, to put your faith in Jesus? Are you this morning believing on Jesus? Are, are you this morning in the habit of repenting, turning from sin and running to Christ? Are, are you in the habit of giving praise to God? If that is true of you, your heart will be delighting in God. And, and I want you to know that true religion flows from a heart that delights in God. Let's pray together. Father, you love us enough to speak truth to us, even when at times truth is hard for us to hear. That you love us enough to say what needs to be said so that we can more clearly see you and to see our own self and to see how much we desperately need Jesus, our Redeemer. Father, I pray that you by your Spirit would be at work in all of our lives so that we would be a people who are believing, that we are a people who are in the habit of quickly repenting and finding comfort in the gospel of your Son. I pray that we would be a people who find delight in you when we think about the great love that you have shown us. And I pray that you would give us hearts that are growing, uh, give us hearts that are filled with love for you and love for people that are, in fact, increasing. The more that we get to see who you are, the more that we understand your character and the way that you have worked in love, in mercy and grace, I pray that it would change us and grow us so that in an ever-increasing way, we can worship you with great joy in our heart for us to delight in you, to be satisfied with you above all else. So Father, help us do this in us for our good, but ultimately for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.